or 30, sorry, 26, I should say. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to take, make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the t entrance of, to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? but they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Lord, we thank you for your holy word, for your desire to reveal to us, Lord, these accounts, these events, and Lord, you've done that so that we can have a greater understanding of how you work in the affairs of man and ultimately, Lord, how you bring about um, your chosen king. And uh, Lord, ultimately we know that that chosen king is Jesus Christ. We know that in 1 Samuel, it ultimately is gonna be falling on the shoulders of David. And yet, Lord, we come to this passage today uh, just really wondering how this is all going to unfold. And Lord, you've revealed this to us and we are so thankful that you've drawn us in, Lord, with, with understanding to see your handiwork on display. Now, Lord, allow me to be your, your mouthpiece. Would you be glorified with our hearts be not only 
uh, strengthened but convicted and challenged and encouraged by what you have for us today. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Um, I, have, I have been in full-time pastoral ministry for about 25 years. Um, so I'll be turning 29 next year. And so you can figure out, you know, it's been a full life. Um, over those 25 years, though, I, I've seen a lot of things take place. And, and I'm not going to give you a catalog of them all, but I'm at least going to think through a few of them, uh, some things that took place uh, in our country, around the world, as well as in the church. And I want to think about the world first. Uh, I, I've seen leaders of countries who have brought great suffering on their people um, deposed. Not necessarily all of them brought to just, but justice, but I've seen nations rise up against these, these uh, um, despots, these dictators who, who abuse their people, and I'm thinking just of a couple of examples. One, of course, is, is Idi Amin. You may or may not remember Idi Amin, but he was called the, the butcher of Uganda. And during the course of his nine years or so of his reign in Uganda, he, he basically took the country through a military coup and ended up in those nine years killing, they, they say anywhere from 300,000 to a million uh, people who opposed him. Um, just, a, just a bloody, uh, dictator. I mean, just, just the awful things that he would do. Another one, you, you're more familiar with the name, but maybe not with the circumstances, uh, Saddam Hussein. Um, as you know, he brought, um, on his country's invasion, you might say due to a number of things, but one of the things uh, was his barbaric acts toward his own people and, and the ultimate threats to the world. You remember, he used chemical uh, weapons against those people that were part of the villages inside of his borders. Again, just, just abusing the people that are part of your realm. And uh, we could go on talking about others. And at the, at the news of such kind of atrocities, even the things that are happening today, we ask ourselves the question, what is going on in the world? And I think we're constantly asking that question. And we're asking that question to the Lord. Lord, what, what, is, what is going on in this world in which we're living? Now, I want to shift focus a little bit now to our country. And then I, I just think over those 25 years how I've seen the, the political arena in our country um, just uh, carry on its thing, so to speak. And I'm not necessarily talking about politics, but I'm talking about the individuals in the political arena who have been involved in sex scandals, fraud, and substance abuse, Resisting arrest, as well, I think it was a couple of years ago, one of the San Francisco uh, key people was caught shoplifting a bunch of dresses from Neiman Marcus or something like that. And it's just like, you know, come on, you're, you guys are in leadership and you're supposed to be examples for the people that you're leading and this is how you behave. And to this day, I don't recall ever hearing one of these politicians saying something like this, I was wrong, what I did was sinful, I don't deserve to serve the people of this country, state, or city. I ask your forgiveness and I will immediately resign. Now we may all chuckle because we've all become a little cynical, haven't we? It's almost like you equate politicians with that kind of behavior. And so we ask ourselves, what is going on in our country? It's a legitimate question. Let's bring it home a little bit. What's going on in the church? And I mean a, the broad umbrella of what is understood to be the church. And as we think about that question, 
during my years, I have seen um, and, and heard through the media and through other sources just about key pastors who have fallen from grace. Um, I'll just mention a few names just to kind of solidify what I'm talking about. You remember that Jim Baker of the PTL era? Uh, I remember that because the 700 Club, no, that's not, that's not right, PTL was like background noise in my home because my mom was watching it all the time. And uh, so when this happened, it was really significant and, and, and horribly impactful, not only to the society, but to the church, but no matter what denomination you were. And then, of course, there was along about the same time Jimmy Swaggart, and then there was Ted Haggard, which is more recently. All of them caught um, uh, from interacting with prostitutes. And Ted Haggard was probably even more of a shock because it was a male prostitute. Now, friends, this, this kind of stuff is happening in the body of Christ. So what is going on in the church? And then, of course, there's all these countless televangelists that thankfully are less now than they used to be, but I don't have that kind of TV anymore, so I don't follow that. But um, you know, they use all their, their clever tricks. They use all their, their, their gimmetry to, 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 to get money off of people, to fool people into following them and sending them money. And one in particular, you may remember this guy, his name was Peter Popoff. And what they found out with him as they did some, some, uh, some um, discovery, some, some tests, was they went into one of his, his little campaign things and they found out that as people came into the service, they would fill out a card, put their name on it, and put a prayer request on and things that they wanted you know, prayer for because uh, Peter Popoff ed- eventually was going to read it and he was going to pray for them. And of course, you wanted Peter Popoff to do that because he was like closer to God. And what happened is that stuff would be gathered where people would go into the service and um, Peter Popoff uh, had a hearing problem, so he had a hearing aid, so everyone thought. What actually happened was that those cards were then taken and given to his wife and she would actually speak to him through radio transmitter into the earpiece so that he would go around and he'd say, God's telling me something something about a man by the name of Ron. And, and Ron, 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 you're, you live on Ambrose Court, don't you? And oh, lordy, lordy, lordy. All right, and so people would just go all kind of crazy because it was all one big sham. And this is the kind of culture that was so commonplace in the church. And you think, you think this is silly. You go to other countries and they look at American Christianity, what do they think of? That's the kind of stuff they think about. The foolishness that goes on. And then, of course, there are other things within the Catholic Church and and the evangelical church, just news about sexual abuse and pastors and youth leaders and Sunday school teachers and so on and so forth, just just getting in situations that are wicked and uh, certainly do not give the church a good reputation. And I, I just found myself, and I still find myself saying, Lord, in one sense, what in the world is going on in the church? And there have been times when these things have happened where I've gone into my office and my closed doors and say, Lord, please, please, please protect me. I do not want to be an excuse for the world to point to me and say, see, there really isn't any God. Christianity's all bunk because of his example. Now, I say all of this because we're jumping into 1 Samuel chapter two. And when we come to 1 Samuel chapter two, We are in another dark time in Israel's history. We've seen some things that have been taking shape in the story so far. But the leadership in this 
context in this culture right now is corrupt. And we're forced to ask the same question, and that is, what is going on in the house of God? There's some things that we're reading. As we read the passage today, you know, I heard some of you, as, as uh, Brett was reading this passage, you're like, ugh, ugh. I mean, you just you read it, you just, you're groaning, because this is all taking place in the context of the house of God at Shiloh. But let's look at verse 11 and allow ourselves the freedom now to work through this passage and see what it is that God wants to tell us is going on in the house of God. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Of course, the context there is that Samuel had been born, and he had been born after um, Hannah had gone to the temple, had pleaded her case, had prayed to the Lord. The Lord answered um, her prayer by giving her peace and contentment and stability and assurance that he was sovereign in control. And over time, as God determined, he allowed Samuel then to be conceived and she bore a son. And so, in, in to honor her, her commitment to God in that prayer, she takes Samuel to the temple and offers him there to be used in service at the temple. Now, that's kind of the context to where we're going. So this is right after her song, and so basically they're leaving him there, and they are going back home. So back home to Ramah, and Eli um, is now uh, with Samuel in Shiloh in the temple. And what we find, first of all, is what I'm calling growing corruption in the house of God. Let's think through this. I want you to notice, first of all, the nature of the corruption. And in particular, I'm talking about two guys. Verse 12, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Worthless men. It's interesting as we've gone through this this book so far, there's been a number of times when I've said to you, that is not a title that you want to ascribe to someone you love. Whether it's a name or whether it's a description here. Worthless men is not something I would want on any of your children, any of your sons in particular. But it's not the first time in 1 Samuel that we've seen this expression. In fact, if you go back to chapter one and verse 16, you remember Hannah's in the temple and she's praying and she's pouring out her heart to God and Eli the priest observe what's going on and he challenges her and she responds in verse 16 by saying this, do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. He thought that she was drunk, and so she's saying, don't regard me as a worthless woman. All right, and what, is that, what does that mean? The idea here, and the word literally means the daughter of Belial, or the daughter of the devil. That's no small expression, is it? So it's an expression that seeks to convict or connect, I should say, a woman to the kind of wicked and rebellious activities that the devil is behind, and you don't have to use your imagination too much to understand what that means. But of course, Hannah in that encounter pleads her case um, before Eli, and that he has it all wrong, she says this, I'm a woman deeply distressed in great anxiety and vexation who is pouring out her soul before God. So when we come to the sons of, of Eli, all we've heard so far is at the beginning of this book, chapter one and verse three, 
where we're just simply told, now this man used to go up by, uh, year by year from the city to worship, to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. Now as we jump into this passage, we begin to, to build a better understanding of the kind of men that these two men are, Hophni and Phinehas. So unlike Hannah, who was not a worthless woman, Hophni and Phinehas are described as worthless men. They are sons of Belial. They are sons of the devil. That is their nature. And what these men, um, the sons of Eli, the priest, have become is they have become these worthless men. Now, to get a, a better picture, even of what this describes, go to Judges in chapter 19. Judges in chapter 19, because you have another description there, and it's not worthless women, it's not worthless men, but it's worthless fellows, because there was a group of men in this passage, Judges 19, 22, who are hungry for immorality, who ultimately rape the concubine of a Levite. And in that passage, they are described as worthless fellows. So can you imagine this, this gang rape mentality taking place now? And she ends up dying as a result of it, and they're described here as worthless fellows. So that you're painting the picture here of the kind of character, the kind of nature of these two men, Hophni and Phineas. And if you're like me, you're shocked that the sons of a priest could be so corrupt, that they could be described as worthless men. And how is it then that they could be described as worthless men? Well, let's now look at not only the, the nature of their corruption, but the source of their corruption. We find that in verse 12. They did not know the Lord. Now what strikes you as shocking in this passage, in this verse? What were these men doing? What was their role? In what kind of context did they grow up? They grew up around the temple. They grew up around the house of God. They grew up around Eli, who was the priest there, I would say the head priest there, and we're told now that the reason for their worthless behavior is because they did not know the Lord. That should shock us. That should actually send some shivers up and down our spine. How can it be that men in positions of spiritual leadership can be identified as not knowing the Lord? Now friends, this isn't a description of their ignorance, but of their defiance. They refused to know the Lord. It doesn't seem to be quite a drastic contradiction for the priest who is representing God and serving God's people to not actually believe in the God he is serving or representing? How is it that the men who don't know the Lord can serve in the house of God, the temple? And friends, it's possible to have a form of godliness and to deny its power. It is possible to be religious but to deny the existence, power, and authority of God in the affairs of men, and it's also possible to be in a position of leadership, influence, and power that can be the launching pad for great sin. But we must remember that although they did not know the Lord, that their arrogance 
was still under the watchful eye of the God of knowledge. One of the things that was amazing to me as I was studying through this passage is that we just last week went through Hannah's song. And how much of Hannah's song now is seen immediately in the next scenario with Eli's sons. They're mighty. They are in control. They're getting full themselves. But their arrogance was still under the watchful eye of the God of knowledge. That's chapter 2, verse 3. And their actions, their behavior, their influence in Israel was being weighed in the balance by God. When you abandon the knowledge of God, you are left to yourself to try to understand and live life. And man left to himself without God will only find empty answers and man-made solutions, and usually those man-made solutions are put in place to benefit the satisfaction of their own flesh. Now, that nature had a source, but that nature that had a source also bears fruit. And we find now the fruit of their corruption throughout this this. This passage, all right, their devilish nature that did not know the Lord was bearing fruit. And the first fruit I want us to see is the fruit of greed. Leviticus chapter 7 and verse 28 through 36 tells us what the priests were allowed to do, that God actually instituted a mechanism so that the priests could Um, benefit and be fed by virtue of the sacrifices. But there were specific instructions. And I'm going to focus in on verse 34 here. For the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, I have taken from the people of Israel out of the sacrifice of their peace offering and have given them to Aaron, the priest, and to his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel. God cared about his priests. So much so that when the sacrifices were given, a portion of that sacrifice, the breast and the right thigh, in the context it tells us that, were set aside for the priests so that they could actually have food and they could eat. Okay? So when you come to offer that sacrifice, you expect that to take place. Okay? God and his provision for the priests. But we find in 1 Samuel a different practice that was taking place in those days. And it sounded something like this. Well, I know that God says we're only to take the breast and right thigh, but we're hungry for more meat. And in particular, raw meat. Notice the first illustration of their corruption around the sacrifices. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in hand and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Now, this is just telling us what they did. This is not a description of what God wanted. What they were doing was a violation of what God had already established for them to be benefiting from the sacrifice. I know this kind of gets all complicated, right? What, you know, sacrifices and all that kind of stuff. But God laid out a, a plan to take care of them, but they were stepping way over the bounds of that plan. 
And so they abused their power because of their greed and took above and beyond what God had allowed in his word. And so greed here, we find, is a driving, sinful idol that looks to get whatever it wants. And often, no matter the consequences, but their greed led to the sin of laziness. That's the next one. We have greed, and now we have laziness. But by the way, just, just pause a little bit. Did you notice how this was described? This was the custom in the house of God at that point in time. This had become the norm. This is what people had grown to expect in the house of God. Now their greed led to laziness. And Did you notice who it was that was going from sacrifice to sacrifice getting all the best portions of meat? It wasn't Hophni and it wasn't Phinehas. They sent a servant to go do their dirty work, so to speak. You go take care of this. They were too lazy in their corruption to do the work themselves. And laziness in the house of God is extremely dangerous. But it wasn't just laziness, but a laziness that flows out of a callousness to God. They were so consumed with their greed that their appetites could only think about what they wanted, and so they were willing to be lazy as well as to send out a servant to be a heavy hand, and that leads us into the third way in which they bore fruit, and that is force. They used force. So we, we, we move from one illustration to another illustration that is used here describing the activities in the temple. Verse 15, moreover, so here's another story, right? Before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw, which well, again was a violation of the instructions from the book of Leviticus. The fat needed to be burned away. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first, then take as much as you wish. But he would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. So we have laziness, agreed, leads to laziness, now leads to manipulation and force. They had no desire to listen to the word of God. And there is the word of God being fleshed out in this context, and that is the person who is bringing the sacrifices saying, well, listen, let them burn the fat first. Why? Because they understood that needed to take place first. But... Hophni and Phinehas and now his servants were not settled to do things God's way. They wanted raw meat that had the fat because it tasted good. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, throw a nice ribeye on the grill this afternoon. You'll understand exactly why they wanted this. They, their bellies were hungry to be satisfied with the raw meat, and they were thought nothing of taking it from those who were bringing sacrifices, even when those bringing sacrifices knew God's instructions. Now, this was their custom. It was their habit. It was the way they behaved in the temple. Their might, because of their spiritual position, was the basis of their plenty. But we're again immediately reminded of Hannah's song. Just look back at verse 3. Take no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. 
The, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. And if you caught the end of our little, our little passage here, the Lord had plans for Hophni and Phinehas. And if you read on in 1 Samuel, you'll know how those plans actually flesh out. Okay? God is at work here fulfilling and accomplishing what was sung in this song of Hannah. So God looks down in full knowledge of their attitudes, behavior, and through the narrative gives his assessment. Look at verse 17 now. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. It wasn't just great. It was very great. It was very serious in the sight of the Lord. For the men had treated the offering of the Lord with what? Contempt. Contempt. Now their sin was not only great, as I said, it was very great. So what does it, what does it mean to treat the Lord's offering with contempt? The very sacrifice that was the means of appeasing man's sin in the sight of God had now become the means of sinning against both God and man. The sacrificial system was instituted by God to be a propitiation, a temporary covering for sin. Temporary because it awaited the sacrifice once for all, which was Jesus' death on the cross. And so the sacrifice was the necessary satisfaction. And so the very thing that was the means by providing a temporary satisfaction, propitiation, had now become the very means of sinning against God. So the very thing that was supposed to provide freedom and hope and satisfaction with God is now the means by which sin is being accomplished. Let me try and illustrate this in our context. Today we're going to be celebrating the Lord's table. Lord's table, communion, Lord's supper. We describe it in a number of different ways. It's a time for believers to reflect on that time when God brought them into his family. It's a time to reflect and to confess and to repent and to restore your relationship with God. It's a somber celebration of what Christ has done on the cross on our behalf, bringing us into his family. Now imagine that I and the elders at Gateway decided that we needed to change the way we celebrated the Lord's Supper. We established a new custom, a new way of doing the Lord's Supper. And before you arrived at the table, because a little later we're gonna come, we actually set up another table, and as you come to that first table, on that table is going to be a box. And in that box is a little slit, just enough for you to put some money in it, okay? And we're saying, listen, when you come for the Lord's table, make sure you bring your $100 bill. Because you all love Jesus, right? And Boy, you want to demonstrate that you love Jesus, right? And certainly we want to give God our best, right? Therefore, everyone that comes from the Lord say, let's celebrate with God by bringing $100 and put it in the box before we actually go to celebrate the Lord's table. What a great custom to start at Gateway. Now, what you don't know in this illustration is that I, along with the rest of the elders, take that box to my office, and we divide that contents into four portions, just four elders, and we use that money for, well, things that God would want us to use that money for. 
Now, obviously, that's not going to happen at Gateway. You understand that is an unrealistic um, illustration. But the point is, if we did something like that and we spun it in such a way that it seemed like this was the way to demonstrate your, your commitment to God and your love for God was by doing this, what have we done? We've turned something that God instituted to be a wonderful time of reflection, celebration, confession, and repentance, and we've corrupted it. We've turned it into something for selfish, sensual, personal gain. Now, friends, that's just one example. It's an example that is outside the context of reality, but it's an example, hopefully, that lets you understand that we can treat the Lord's Supper with contempt because we're turning it away from what it is meant to be into something sinful that satisfies our greedy desires. And friends, sadly, the stories of that kind of thinking are plenty in the history of the church. Whether it's the indulgences taken by the Catholic Church, which of course were the topic of Luther's 95 Theses, they were part of the reason, not all of it, but were some of the package reason for the beginning of the Reformation, whether it's the money-grabbing scams of the televangelists who claim that if you simply send some money, they'll send you back a prayer cloth or a piece of toast or some kind of crazy gimmick just to get that money, and you're stuck with a cloth that does nothing for you except clean your glasses, or, or, or the guilt trip dribble that, that comes from the prosperity preachers that say, listen, if you just give more, God will bless you. And when God blesses you, you will be healed. And if you aren't healed, it's probably because you're not giving to the church. And ultimately what they want is more money so they can build their own houses and pad up their bank accounts. Friends, it happens in the body of Christ. And it is contempt for the house of God. And friends, as a church, we need to keep our eyes open and our ears open and make sure that we are not coming anywhere close down that path. That we're not taking the, the things of God and allowing some selfish, sinful desires to creep in and to turn it into something that it's not supposed to be. And anytime we serve in the church without regard for God and his word, and purely to satisfy our own flesh, we're treating God's house with contempt. Now friends, that can happen in a number of different ways. That can happen right up here with me, ministering the word of God, thinking to myself, boy, I've, they're, they're hanging on every word I'm saying. That was a really good, really good illustration, Rod. Well done. Whew, I know they love that one. And when people say, hey, you know, Pastor, that, that, that message really was helpful for me. It's like, I know, it's good, yeah. But you see, you understand, standing here carries with it great responsibility. And there's a lot of trust put on you toward anyone who's standing in this position that we must make sure that our attitudes and, 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 and the, the ethics of our heart are in line with God. That is true for anyone who might stand up here and lead and worship. Why are you doing it? Why are you playing the guitar? Why are you singing in that context? Why are you playing uh, some instrument up here? Is it to be seen? Yeah, I'm up here. Look at me. I'm part of the band. Yeah. woohoo! As opposed to, thank you, Lord, for giving me this gift. And I'm glad that I can be a part of helping the body of Christ lift their praises to you. 
You see, these little nuances here that we must remember that are all part of ways in which we can bring contempt on something that is supposed to be good and right. can happen by simply taking on a position of leadership. You know, I'm now the chairman of the, um, the linen cloth washing company, you know, whatever it might be. It's like, oh, no, I've got it. Woohoo! look at me, you know. Chairman, committee, it's me. No, you serve. And you do it with an attitude of humility and thankfulness that God has given you a place to serve. It's so easy to bring contempt to the things of God when we are allowing our sinful flesh to rule as opposed to submitting ourselves to the leadership of our Lord and Master. Deep down in our hearts, we must be careful that we're not thinking, hey, it's really all about me. Now, that's not all. There's actually a couple of more fruit hanging on this tree that we want to see, and it'll kind of take place a little later here, so we'll just touch on it. Verse 22, now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing in all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. What? What in the? So not only were the sons of Eli satisfying their greedy bellies with forbidden offerings of food, they were satisfying their sexual desires by sleeping with the women who were supposed to be serving in the temple. Now, I don't think that it's pushing the envelope to say that the, the general tone of the spiritual culture of the house of the Lord was only evil continually. We can certainly say that the continual evil had become the crisis among the servants of the house of God. But sadly, if we're not shocked at this, it's because we're living in a time when this kind of behavior seems to be par for the course. We've grown accustomed to hearing about leaders in the church abusing their authority to the point that they're getting rich off of their congregations or they're uh, committing sexual sin in some way, shape, or form or they're willfully covering up scandalous sin in the context of the church. So we're just not shocked anymore and that's a sad state of affairs But it's also becoming more and more common in our culture to think that a healthy church is one that is, and I've just kind of five things came to my mind. A healthy church is atheological. That doesn't hold to the literal teaching of the word of God. In other words, it's a good thing for a church not to be so literal in their understanding of what the word of God actually says. I mean, you can't be that backward in your thinking, can you? You need to be contemporary. We are living here in 2014. Why is it every every year it's like, you know, we are living in? I mean, if I said we are living in 1988, you'd be like, "Uh uh-huh. Just because it's 2014 doesn't mean that sin is any different. But it's simply saying, the word of God, oh, it's there, it's nice, we use it, it looks good in our pews and uh, on the pulpit, but... Take it literally? I don't know. So it's off theological. Secondly, it's, it's a loving church. In other words, unwilling to speak the truth of God to the people gathered as a church. We're just all about love. We want you to know that, that, that God loves you. Now, there's an element of truth to that. But the kind of love they're portraying is a love that 
that has absolutely no qualifiers, no instructions, no guidance. It's just a love of fully accepting everyone. That kind of leads us to the next one. It's, it's fully inclusive. It embraces people of all faiths as heading toward the same heaven. We don't, it doesn't matter who you actually worship. We're just glad that you're all here together to worship God. And that could be anything you want it to be. In the house of God? Yeah. The churches all across this country at one point in time had orthodoxy that now do not have orthodoxy and are espousing these kinds of things as if this is what God wants. Then there's this whole thing of gender sensitivity. Try to figure out a way to describe this, but it welcomes sexual immorality in all its forms as simply a matter of gender identity. So if you say, well, you know, we're, we're, we're homosexual. Oh, okay, so that means you're excused now from any sexual immorality because that's what you are. You see, you see how this is crazy? And then there's this last one, tolerance of all. It believes that sin, or well, the real sin is a lack of tolerance for mankind and doesn't tolerate those who hold to different beliefs than theirs, which of course is a contradiction, right? The intolerance of the intolerant. Now just painting a picture, there's something radically that is a problem with this big umbrella of the house of God today. And we, we, just, we, we cannot say that it cannot happen at Gateway. We've got to be honest with the fact that these things creep in. And they begin to wrestle with our minds and our thinking. So what about us? It's worth looking at ourselves and asking, is there any way that we have taken what the Lord has given us and turned it upside down because we want to satisfy our sinful and sensual desires? Why do we sing the songs that we sing? Now, I want to tell you something. I, I, I am truly thankful for those who help us in the area of leading our congregation in worship. One of the beautiful things that we have in our church is we have a variety of people that do that. And songs are carefully thought through and chosen that, that, that draw our attention to who Christ is and what he has done. So it's, it's a question. Why do we sing a particular song? What hoops do we make people jump through to get to God? Do we have some issues there? Has our strong belief in the sovereignty of God become an excuse for our responsibility to be ambassadors with the gospel? Well, I believe that God is sovereign. He's going to work it out all in the end, so I'm going to go focus doing what I want to do. Well, you can believe in the sovereign God, but that sovereign God also says that we are to be responsible in sharing the gospel. But you see how our theology can get in the way of what God actually wants us to do because we're not seeing it completely. And so ultimately we're bringing contempt to this whole arena of saying, take the gospel to the nations or to your neighbors. So it should come as no surprise then that Hophni and Phinehas not only bore fruit of greed and laziness and force and then immorality, but there's one more, and I call it spiritual deafness. Spiritual deafness. Look at verse 25. After Eli comes to them and talks to them, asks them a question, communicates the gravity of what they're doing, it says, 
but they would not listen to the voice of their father. But remember, in the context of the story, it's not just the voice of their father they wouldn't listen to. They wouldn't listen to the common person offering the sacrifice. They just wouldn't listen to the word of God, period. They did not want to be fashioned and shaped or challenged or convicted or rebuked with the word of God. They had no intent on hearing what Eli was saying. They would not listen or heed his warning at all. So this is a rather scathing list of the reasons why the narrator describes Hophni and Phinehas as worthless men. And as a result, they didn't know the Lord. That's the reason why, and as a result, they were greedy, lazy, abusive, immoral, and deaf to any kind of spiritual guidance. Now friends, that is not the kind of leadership Israel needed. It's certainly not the kind of leadership we want to settle for in our church. And it's a leadership that is opposed to God, but using the positions established by God as avenues of power and abuse to satisfy their own ends. So there's this growing corruption that's taking place. But now we want to move into a different arena, and that will be what I'm calling growing weakness. Growing weakness in the house of God. There's a growing corruption in the leadership of Israel. There's also a growing weakness um, in the leadership of Israel. And this is, this is where our narrator is taking us. He wants us to see these things. He's trying to paint a picture for us because he has something incredible to say yet. So we're gonna, first of all, before we get to Eli, because he's ultimately gonna be the one that we see as weak, He's going to paint the picture for us by, by virtue of comparison with Elkanah and Hannah. Um, and I want to be careful here, and this is a caution alert, because when I say contrasting Elkanah and, and Hannah with Eli, I'm not necessarily saying or talking about their parenting styles. And some people have come to this passage and they say, ah, parenting, you know, she is there, she's bringing ephod every year, she's a great mom, isn't that great? She's doting on him, and Eli, he didn't care, he didn't listen, I mean, he didn't do anything, and so be like Hannah, don't be like Eli, here's some principles for, for parenting. And there's elements of truth, there are things that we can learn from that, but that's not the reason why they're in the story, okay? They will have some impact, and I think the impact they have is significant, but this is not simply a passage packaged for us on parenting. So the problem here is that if we look at godly Samuel, by the way, um, chapter eight, just do that for a second here, right? You think, all right, you know, so, you know, Eli was a really bad guy. He was a priest, and look at his sons. I just want to remind you of, here's, here's godly Samuel, um, verse, chapter eight, verse one, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Okay, and just one of the things that we need to learn here is that we have a responsibility as parents to represent God faithfully. That doesn't necessarily mean that our children are always gonna turn out to be worshipers of God. And that's not kind of like, oh, panic. It's, hey, listen, we have a responsibility to be parents. And, and that child is an individual who will orient themselves either away from God or they'll orient themselves with God. And there certainly is a human side to that and there is a divine side to that. But as parents, we have a responsibility before God. Now we find 
Um, we we, we want to kind of move then from, from this comparison and understand that, that, that the point of illustration here is that one set of parents honored the Lord in carrying out their responsibilities. The other parent didn't honor the Lord, okay, with his responsibilities. So notice first the example of strength, honor and blessing that we see in both Elkanah and Hannah. Verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Now here's the strength, that each year Elkanah and Hannah would return their Uh, they would come and they would see their son serving in the house of the Lord as Hannah had vowed to the Lord. So the strength was that having given their son over, that they came year after year. There's a strength of character that is willing to do the hard thing and continuing to give their son to the Lord, continuing to say, yes, this is where he needs to be. Yes, I love my son, but this is what he needs to be doing. I have given him to the Lord. Then there's honor. And there's honor in the fact that each year Hannah comes with a linen ephod for Samuel. Why would that be significant? Because I think, I think it's her way of supporting what her son is doing and supporting his function and his role as a servant. Each year, I'm, I'm bringing you some clothing, but it's a, an ephod. It's, it's a supporting you in the role as priest. So there's this honoring of that commitment, that honoring of their responsibility. And then, of course, there's the, there's the blessing that we find in this passage, the promise God made through the lips of Eli is realized. Look then at verse 20. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So truly, God has blessed Hannah, he's visited Hannah and he has blessed her. In chapter two, verse five, remember that song, the barren has born seven. And this is, this is her just praising God for the fruit that comes as a result of um, his faithfulness to her. So that's the example of Elkanah and Hannah. Now we look at the example of weakness, dishonor, and judgment. So we're turning our attention now to Eli we see, yes, not only he is old, but he's very old. But I want to ask a couple of questions. All right, I want you to consider, you know, what is it that Eli knew? Well, let's read verse 22. Now, Eli was very old, and he, get this, kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. So Eli was the recipient of news and gossip about his sons, continual, ongoing news, all right? And I'm sure that resulted in many sleepless nights. I think as a parent, if you hear news about your children that, that doesn't conform to, hey, we're honoring God, it, it, as a parent, you're, you're, you, know, you get consumed with that. And I'm sure that when he put his head on the pillow at night, he's, he's thinking to himself, where did I go wrong? I've taught them the ways of the Lord. How could they be behaving this way? Maybe these reports are exaggerated. Maybe these reports are true. 
Don't they know what they're doing? Don't they know that their behavior is an offense to God? What am I going to say to them? And these are all the kind of things that a parent's going to think about, having heard these things. But ongoing hearing this over and over and over. And so now the question is, what, is, what does Eli say? Look at verse 23. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil do- dealings from all these people. I mean, this is, this is not just private information now. This is, this is public information. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? So these reports were clearly coming from the people of the Lord and the, the reputation of Hophni and Phinehas was not good. And so Eli finally speaks. And he asks them a question. Why do you do such things? Why do you do such things? And then he does speak the truth to them about the gravity of sinning against God, stressing the fact that if you sin against God, you are left alone because there is no one who can intercede. Now I want you to notice what Eli did. You have to look real hard because you won't find anything. He does nothing. He heard. He said something. But he did nothing. Now it's both the father and of the, I want to say high priest or head priest, of the priestly functions, they were under his authority. He was responsible for overseeing the work of his sons. A verbal warning was good, but not enough. He should have at least rebuked them. What he did was kind of explain, this is what you did, but he didn't rebuke them. And that rebuke should have followed up in removing them. They should not be serving in the temple. They should not be representing God in this context. So it, it called for a rebuke, but it also called for action. And the action would be to remove them. And this is all based on their worthless behavior. But there's something else that we could also say would be true. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 21. Deuteronomy chapter 21. In verse 18, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gate of the place where he lives, and they shall say to the elders of the city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious, he will not obey our voice, he is a glutton and a drunkard, then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones, so you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear in fear. Wow. Let me tell you something. What Hophni and Phinehas were doing in the temple is far worse than what we just read here. So not only did they deserve to be rebuked, they deserved to be removed, but they also deserved to be executed for the way in which they corrupted the house of God. That would flow right out of 
what God says in his word, it would fit right into the picture. What we have in Deuteronomy is a lesser offense, but these were worthless men. Now the question is, what was God doing? If we think that the thought of executing Hophni and Phinehas is going a little over the top, we need to pay attention to the rest of this verse. But they would not listen to the voice of their father and put a little why, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. (gasps) The will of the Lord to put them to death? That's what it says, isn't it? So what Eli wouldn't do, God was already planning to do. And we will see how God brings about their death. But hear this, they are both fully responsible for their actions. They knew what they were doing. They knew that they were treating the temple of the Lord with contempt and that their behavior was a very great sin in the sight of God. So in their stubbornness and unbelief, God gave them over to their reprobation, and they will get what they know God has promised. You might want to jot down Romans 1, 18 through the end, or at least through, what, 24, 26, something like that. In that passage, God says, you're going to behave like this. You're going to shake your fist at me. You're going to rebel against me. I'm going to give you over and I'm going to give you over, and I'm going to give you over. And so we were a little shocked that God would say things like this. But sins against other people can be forgiven through the atoning blood of the Lord's sacrifice, but but what can be done for the sins that show contempt for the sacrifice themselves? This was a sin against God's way of salvation. And this is a sin that committed today or that is committed today when people despise the gospel of God's grace through Christ. If you reject the gospel, there's nothing left. If you reject the sacrifice in Samuel's day, there's nothing left. It was the way of salvation. And when this happens, it is not unusual for God to give those people over to the hardness of their hearts. Dale Davis, I think, helps at least me, and I think helps us understand this warning. He says, someone can remain so firm in his rebellion that God will confirm it, or can confirm him in it, so much so that he will remain utterly deaf and unmoved by any warnings of judgment or pleads for repentance. But see, the thing is, they've chosen that. Okay? They did not know the Lord wasn't because they weren't around the things of God, they chose that. And so God leaves them in this. So Eli, as the father, and as the head priest in Shiloh, was weak. He wouldn't follow through in rebuking rebuking his sons. He acted in dishonor. If we look at the next paragraph, we'll see God's assessment through the voice of a prophet. Look at verse 29 of chapter two. Eli, you honored your sons above me. And in so doing, he dishonored the Lord. And then, of course, there's judgment. This is the end. They, his sons, will be put to death. What a picture of what's going on in the house of God. I mean, it's a shambles, isn't it? It's not just a story. This is a, this is a window into the debauchery in the house of God. 
and the weakness of character of the leadership of Eli in that context of the house of God. And so no, it's no wonder then that everyone was doing right what was right in their own eyes, not just because there was no king in Israel, but because there was an absence of strong godly leadership in the house of God. Israel is in a desperate place. So we've seen growing corruption, we've seen growing weakness. Now I want you to notice what I'm calling growing hope in the house of God. Because in the background of these revelations about the events in the house of God is God at work, slowly, steadily, patiently, purposefully, and you know, in the background, we just kind of see it come through the text. Through all of this, this nastiness that we see in this passage, we see God at work. And so not only is, is it the will of God to put the sons of Eli to death, but it is the will of God to be at work in the life and ministry of a little boy by the name of Samuel. Let's go back through this passage, verse 11. And the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. That's when we see him first. Worthless Hophni and Phinehas abusing their priesthood. And here's little Samuel beginning his role, learning what it means to be a priest. We find Hophni and Phinehas then continuing to abuse their priesthood, in particular with the sacrifices. And then at the end, we find verse 18, Samuel ministering before the Lord, literally in the presence of the Lord. But notice who is not there. It's a little argument from silence, but Eli's not there. He is now doing it. He's old enough now to actually do it himself. And then we find mom's doting support with the linen ephods year after year. And at the end of that, we find in verse 21, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Eli's hearing the news of his worthless sons over and over What is going on in the house of God? And this passage is screaming to us, verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. You just want to see this. This is is all background stuff. This is God working quietly when everything seems so drastic and so out there and so sinful and so corrupt. God has not forgotten his purposes. He's still at work, quietly in the background. It's almost like the narrator's telling the story about Hophni and Phinehas, and, and it's like in the background, it's like little Samuel's back there waving at us, saying, just, do you see me? Okay, just hold on to that thought as he tells the story, and then he pops up a little later. Here I am again. It's just a picture of God's providential work in preparing and raising his man. And listen, one of the key things that's said here is this. Now, the boy Samuel continued to grow um, sorry, to continue to grow in stature. Physically, he was growing. But it says that he was growing in favor with the Lord. <laughs> yes, finally! Someone in the house of God that is concerned about the things of God, that is serving God in such a way that he's finding favor with the Lord. There is hope for Israel. There is hope in this this little boy who's growing. But not only did he grow in favor with the Lord, because he was concerned to honor the Lord, he grew in favor with man. 
because he was concerned to have a good reputation with God's people. What was lacking in the house of God? Not only priests that were serving God with honor and integrity, but reputation among the people, that those priests were living a life that honored and glorified the Lord. So God is slowly restoring not only the position of the priesthood, but also the reputation of the priesthood in the house of God. He is slowly raising up his leader. So we also see that while Eli was losing his sons to the devil, Elkanah and Hannah were losing their sons or their son to the Lord, which is a good thing. Now I just pause here and say this. I want to plead with you parents. Be very, very careful that you don't hold your children back from serving the Lord in the hard places. Maybe God is gonna call your son to serve the Lord as a pastor or a missionary. And in today's context, maybe that person goes into that kind of a mission field a little differently than maybe we have done it in the past and it can be dangerous and can be difficult. And you're like, well, I don't wanna lose my child. I don't wanna There's something greater going on and it's called the unfolding of God's kingdom and the affairs of man. He is working his will through his people. And be careful as a parent, as much as you love your children, to be able to release them and lose them to the Lord if that is his will for them. Rather than holding on to them, protecting them, and not allowing them to experience all the struggles that they may have. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. I have three things to finish with here this morning, just flowing out of this passage. Number one, spiritual darkness is often the prelude to the movement of God. A quick study of the revivals in the Bible will show that to be true, and a quick study of the revivals in the United States will also show that to be true, that there is this darkness, there is this famine of the word of God in the land, and it's, it's, it's you know, people are hungry, they're just parched, and God breaks in with his gospel once again. And there are these kind of cycles that history goes through in particular locations. Now, that's, that's American kind of history as I'm thinking about it. Early 1740, an American pastor named Samuel Blair complained in this way. He says, religion lay, as it were, a-dying and ready to expire its last breath of life in this part of the visible church. But history reveals that his complaint was on the brink of what we now know as the Great Awakening. See, God had quietly been working in just common people, just no-name pastors, to bring about this mighty awakening of the gospel again. So he takes the obscure and he raises them when all kinds of mess is going on and he steadily raises them to be his servants in his timing and in his place. So don't allow the darkness around you or even in the church to drive you to despair. Allow it to drive you to prayer for what God is doing that you can't see but you know he is at work accomplishing. 
And sometimes we need to be praying for the things that we don't see, but we know the providence that God is carrying out. Secondly, honoring God is the primary responsibility of any parent. We will see this a little bit more laid out next week. But you may be old, you may have been brought up with bad examples, you may have children who are little devils, but God has called you to represent him. Clearly, boldly, firmly, with a seriousness that conveys both the beauty of God's unfailing love and the reality of God's consistent justice. As a parent, the question you're gonna ask yourself constantly is, what will honor God in this context? Am I honoring God or am I dishonoring him by being more concerned about how I feel, about what other people think, about what other people might say? How am I honoring God as a parent? And the third thing is there's a gospel seriousness at stake. When we talk about the gospel, we're not just talking about a mechanism. We're not just talking about some kind of a man-made plan. We're talking about the very means by which God sent his son Jesus Christ to this earth to die on a cross and in so dying be that sacrifice once for all so that no more sacrifices were necessary to appease God because there was one sacrifice ultimately that would completely appease God's wrath. It is a serious thing to handle the gospel of Jesus Christ to stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we don't want to water it down because when we water it down, what do we do? We bring corruption on it. That's why we don't add to it. That's why we don't take anything away. We take it for what it is and we allow it to be the means by which God works his will in the affairs of man. So we don't soften it. We're careful to present it. And friends, that's why Jesus came into the world. We don't want to profane the very means by which reconciliation with God can be accomplished. We want to make sure that we present it fully and completely so that that reconciliation can actually take place. Now today we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. There is a way in which we can bring a corruption to the Lord's table. In fact, the Apostle Paul talked about that to the Corinthian church because they would gather for a, you know, a church like this, probably in a home somewhere, and after that time of, of ministry of the word, they would gather for a meal, and part of that meal included the celebration of the Lord's table. But what happened is the people ended up turning this meal into this kind of wild celebration, taking the focus off of what that meal was actually about, it was about the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can come to the celebration of communion in such a way where our hearts and our attitudes are sinful, we're cavalier about it, we're not taking it seriously, we're just going through a ritual, 
when God has allowed for it to be a means, and I'll say this carefully, a means of grace, not that we are being given more grace, but a means of us being reminded of the grace that God has already given us in our past that is present with us now, that carries us through our lives until we're called into heaven. And so we come to the Lord's table saying, thank you for the reminder of what you have done for me. I am undeserving. You are beautiful. You are wonderful. I want to celebrate the memory of what you did in your body, the memory of what you've done in shedding your blood because you did that for me. You did that for us. And I want to come with the right attitude. And that's why when we celebrate the Lord's table, we ask if you're not a child of God, Respect the Lord's table by not coming and participating. We will totally respect you for doing that. We won't think anything less of you. Be thankful that you're being honest. So this morning, we want to draw our attention to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we want to make sure that in doing so, that we are not bringing corruption to the house of God, that we, by virtue of our sinfulness, are cleansed through the blood, through the body, sacrificed on that cross. And that when God looks down at us, he looks at us through what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. Lord, help us today to be mindful, Lord, of what you have done for us. Some of us this morning may be convicted because we may see how we have brought corruption in our areas of service. And Lord, this is an opportunity for us to come before you with a repentant heart, confessing our sin. And Lord, even as we are just sitting quietly and praying to you, Lord, if, if, if would you hear the, 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 the cries of your children confessing and repenting Lord, as we prepare for the Lord's table. Oh Lord, we need you. We need the Lord's table in our lives to remind ourselves of the beauty of your gospel and the power that it has been in changing us so radically. Yes, Lord, now as we partake, may we be encouraged and strengthened. Lord, may you be glorified. May you be seen in all your beauty and wonder for what you have done for us on the cross. We ask in your name, amen.